Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea this morning. Jesus alone satisfies thirsty people. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been really thirsty? Like devastatingly thirsty? I don't know much about this. I lead a pretty cushy life, but I've talked to those who have served in the military uh, in the Far East or those who lived in more um, arid climates. When you get thirsty, there's nothing that can satisfy you but water, right? People of Israel knew something about thirst. They had this period in their history where they were brought out of Egypt and brought into this uh, new promised land. And between that space of leaving Egypt and landing in the new promised land, there was this period where they wandered in deserts for years. And as we read books like uh, Exodus and Numbers, we find that the people of God are are complaining about water. Thirsty. This morning, Jesus invites us into some of that history that he has with the nation of Israel. And as we've said, we are going to see here in John chapter 7 that Jesus alone satisfies thirsty people. And we're going to see this in three particular movements. You'll see them on the screen behind me. That Jesus starts off kind of avoiding public ministry and this interaction that he has with his brothers in verses 1 through 9. And then finally, he does kind of go up to this Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. And in verses 10 through 36, he's met or sought by the Jews. And then in verses 37 through 52, everyone is responding to Jesus. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus' bold claim that Brian has just read for us this morning. The preclusion up to that and then the response to it. And finally, we're going to see that Jesus alone satisfies thirsty people. What is this Feast of Booths that we're talking about? Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23, God outlines all of these kind of festivals that are to happen. And so he says, here's the Passover festival that you're going to celebrate. Here's what Sabbath is and all these other things. And then he gets down toward the end of the chapter and he lays out the instruction for this thing called Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were instructed to kind of take bows of of different palm branches and to make for themselves kind of little mini shelters, right? So it's like Occupy Israel, right? That's what's happening there in the desert. And they're setting up these booths. And in Leviticus 23, 43, he gives us the purpose. He says that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God. See, the purpose is to remember this season where God provided for his people while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so traditionally, this kind of involved a few items. By the time it's being practiced in the first century in our text in John 7, it's kind of evolved. And so what you would do is you would grab a piece of citrus fruit and you would put it in your left hand. And this is called an ethrog. I know that's a pretty popular word around here. An ethrog in your left hand, and you would have a lulab in your right hand. That's three different kinds of branches, a uh, a palm branch, a willow branch, and a myrtle branch. I have no idea what the difference between those three things are. 
but you would kind of go into town with these things. And what would happen is the priest, he would grab this golden pitcher and they would start at the temple and then they would make their way to the pool of Siloam. And when he got to the pool of Siloam, he would dip his pitcher into the pool of Siloam, carry it above his head back to the temple. And then every day for six days, they would do this and he would pour out the water on the altar in the temple. When you got to the seventh day, it became an even bigger deal because what they would do is they would grab the pitcher, they would go, they would bring the, pool from the, uh, the water from the pool of Siloam, and then they would go around the altar seven times, just like the city of Jericho. And then as he went to raise the water higher and higher, the crowd would yell, higher, higher, more, more, more. And everyone was encouraging the priest to raise the water higher and higher to pour it out onto the altar. And this is how they would celebrate God's provision for them, specifically around two different areas, whether it was fire or water, God had provided specifically uh, for the people of Israel, not just uh, with water like he did at the rock, uh, but also with his presence in a pillow of fire and pillar of smoke. See, it's with this context in mind that we come to our text in John chapter 7. I'm going to invite you to look at verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even, even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying, saying this, he remained in Galilee. John explains these circumstances, specifically why Jesus was unwilling to go to Judea, where Jerusalem would be, right? Because people there were trying to kill him. We saw this back in John chapter 5, that after healing this paralytic man and claiming equality with God the Father, uh, the Jews of the area, the religious authorities were seeking to kill him. We'll even kind of talk about this here later in our text. But in the midst of that, his brothers just don't understand. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus' brothers don't believe in him in verse 5. And so they have this kind of selfish orientation about themselves. In verse 4, these brothers assume that Jesus seeks to be known openly. In fact, Jesus will address this directly later on in our passage. He doesn't work with their intention. He doesn't work for his own intention, excuse me. He seeks the Father's glory, not his own. So Jesus isn't ready to go into this very public arena in this way. So he responds in verses 6 through 9. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He tells us that the world rejects him because he calls out their evil deeds. That's what he says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Therefore, people were seeking his life and he would not be going up publicly in this, in this time. See, what this tells us is that Jesus knew his purpose. 
Even as his brothers were pushing him into this very public interaction, they wanted him to go up and show out and kind of show himself off to the world. Jesus had a very different orientation, and he knew his purpose. Notice what Jesus says twice in verses 6 and verse 9. He says, my hour or my time has not yet come. In fact, he opens and closes his statements to his brothers with this very phrase. We should recognize this phrase, right? Because as we've been going through John, we've seen this phrase used time and time again. We've seen it used in in chapter 2, verse 4, when Jesus, speaking to his mother, said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We'll see it in John chapter 8, verse 20 next week, where Jesus tells us that no one arrested Jesus, or John tells us that no one arrested Jesus in the treasury because his hour had not yet come. We see it in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. In chapter 12, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and remains alone It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And when Jesus had spoken these words in 17.1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your sons that you may glorify him. See, Jesus knew his timing, didn't he? He knew that he had an hour wherein he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins. He knew that it was going to come to a point where he was going to be so rejected by these religious authorities, that he was going to be put to death, and that that death would be sacrificial for the sins of others. See, Jesus knew his purpose, and he carried it out. He doesn't go to this public feast as his brothers wanted, and apparently Jesus understood the implications that such a public appearance would lead to a kind of premature interaction here. Don Carson says something interesting, because time and time again, we've seen uh, the Father is initiating the Son's ministry. The Father is showing Jesus what to do. And Carson says that Jesus doesn't go up to the festival at this point in time, because the Father isn't prompting him to yet. But just because Jesus knew his purpose, and Jesus knew his time, and Jesus knew his identity, doesn't mean that everyone else knows who Jesus is. And what we see in verses 10 through 36 is Jesus is sought by the Jews, but it bears some ironic kind of meaning in our passage. They're seeking him because they want to kill him. They're seeking him because they want to put him to death. See, these other Jews don't have an understanding about Jesus that Jesus does. And so what we see in verses 10 through 36 is a bunch of questions that are laid out for us. And so question number one happens in verses 10 through 21. And this is it. How does Jesus teach with such authority? Look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among, among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has such learning? How is it, um, excuse me, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's going on here? See, the first thing we see is that there's some questions about, well, actually, the first thing we see is this question about Jesus going up. And we kind of want to deal with this just as an aside, because some have kind of leveled a, an accusation that maybe Jesus lied or, or spoke falsely or, or something along those lines. But we want to come back to this understanding that Jesus rejected something from his brothers that was showing himself openly or publicly. That was the temptation from his brothers, right? That, that they would show himself openly or show himself to the world in verse 4. And this is what Jesus rejects. Notice that verse 10 highlights that Jesus went up in private. And no one is saying anything openly about Jesus, and he's hearing, or we're hearing, all of these discussions about Jesus privately. See, verses 11 through 13 are showing us some of these internal dialogues about Jesus. And so everybody's kind of hushed and quiet, and they're speaking in soft tones about Jesus, right? And some of them are saying, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's leading the people astray. And finally, as he begins to teach, one central question kind of arises to the top, and it's about how Jesus teaches with such authority. This is what we see in verse 14. How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? The son of a carpenter shouldn't speak so intelligently from the Word of God. The son of a carpenter shouldn't have so much knowledge. Look at how Jesus responds. He says, essentially, my teaching's not my own. This learning's not about me. Jesus tells us that, that he's, his teaching comes from the Father and that it's self-authenticating. Jesus makes a, a really bold claim in verses 16 and 17. He's saying, I speak what the Father speaks to me, and so therefore, if you desire the will of the Father, you're going to hear my words. When, when I speak the Father's words, and you want to see the Father honored, you will resonate with what I say. And so he lays out an accusation in verse 19. That's true. If the Father's words resonate with those who want the Father's will, why are they trying to kill him? That's what he claims in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? It seems like an abrupt kind of accusation, right? It seems like Jesus is kind of trailing off here. But really what he's doing is he's bringing it down to brass tacks. Jesus is saying, if you truly claim to love the Father, why are you so willing to break the law in my instance? Why do you have murderous intentions toward me? When he gets on later on, they kind of try and pass the comment aside in verse 20. The crowd answers, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. This is a bit disingenuous because when we look down to verse 25, 
They say, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? They knew he was being sought to be killed by the Pharisees. And Jesus presses on in his logic in verse 21. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and, cir- uh, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? We've got to back up here a little bit to John chapter 5, because what we just saw in John chapter 5 was the story of a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus comes along and he tells the man to, to stand up, to take up his mat and walk. And it's exactly what the man does. But when the religious authorities see him carrying his mat on the Sabbath, they confront him, and it leads to this interaction, not just with the man, but with Jesus. It leads to the persecution of Jesus, as John 5 tells us. And ultimately, because he claims equality with the Father in that text, ultimately they're trying to seek to put him to death. And so Jesus is drawing out their logic and saying, if you're willing that someone who's uh, supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day, if that day happens to fall on the Sabbath, you would circumcise someone on the eighth day, day and do that work on the Sabbath. Why is it wrong for me to heal a man's whole body? Why are you so willing to be contradictory? At the end of this section, he comes to this question and he says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge by right judgment. It calls into mind a section of Isaiah chapter 11 that we saw just a few months ago where where the, uh, the Messiah is described as one who wouldn't judge by what his eyes saw or what his ears heard, but he would judge the world with righteousness. Jesus stands out as one who will judge the world with righteousness, and he's highlighting how they are not capable to judge. So the question is, who, how does Jesus teach with such authority? Because he comes from God, and he teaches the words of God. Second question is this, is Jesus really the Christ? We're going to see this in verses 25 through 26. Look at verse 25 with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that authorities, the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That's a backwards way of thinking, isn't it? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the peoples believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? 
see the question is posed there in verse 26. Can it be the, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But they immediately have these few hang-ups that are, are there. Specifically, they know that this Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And they also know that Jesus doesn't come from Bethlehem. Now, it's worth noting that uh, children of Jesus' age and from Bethlehem would have all been put to death. I mean, there would not have been many uh, 33-year-old males that had come from Bethlehem around because Herod had put them all to death. It would have immediately signified that he would be one as a viable candidate of this prophecy. But Jesus doesn't lean into that identity. He wants them to figure out who he is a different way. See, what Jesus tells them is that he was sent. Verse 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. More notably, they don't know that the God who sent him, verse 28 says, him you do not know. In fact, in verses 33 through 36, Jesus gives a second answer. It's not just that he was sent from the Father, it's that he's going back to the Father. Not only is he sent, he's also validated by the fact that he will go back to the presence of his Father. If Jesus' hometown was somehow to validate his identity, now Jesus is giving it an even greater identity uh, marker for him. He came from God. He teaches from God. He's going back to God. And yet all this does is cause more confusion. See, the Jews thought they knew the Messiah's purpose. And this section, verses 10 through 36, invites us into these questions and objections to Jesus being the Messiah. And what Jesus does is he just unashamedly presents himself. If the question is, who is Jesus? Jesus gives us this full-throated answer. He's the one sent by the Father and doing the Father's work and speaking the Father's word. He's the one that will go back to the Father and be reunited or restored with the Father in his presence. But notice all of this confusion surrounding Jesus. They aren't sure if he fits the Messiah's description. His miracles and teachings are undeniable, but what do you do with this guy? what Jesus tells us is it has to do with this sinful orientation of the heart. In verse 17, look what he says. He says in chapter 7, verse 17, which we just saw, he said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Because you aren't the son of the, the father or you're not uh, in line with the father, you don't understand my words exactly what Jesus did with the Pharisees in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We should make no mistake here. Sinners cannot see Christ without the Father drawing them. We saw this last chapter, the last time we were in John 6, when Brian spoke, he drew out this, this theme really well that the Father is drawing people to himself. We see it in places like John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Or John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And really there's this kind of balance between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. John chapter 6 is showing us this sovereign God who invites us, who draws us to himself, who causes us to come to him. 
And yet John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 show us this open invitation of Jesus. In fact, if we go forward into our next section in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we see this openness. Look at John chapter 30, or John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus gives this open invitation, doesn't he? What's he saying? He's saying, uh, all satisfying, giver, giver of the Spirit, come to me and, and drink. If you go back in the Old Testament, because remember, we're thinking about the Exodus because this is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? If you go back into the Old Testament, there's this accounting in Numbers chapter 20 that the people of Israel come to Moses and Aaron and they say, Moses, we're thirsty. We don't have any water. And Moses uh, responds, and he and Aaron go back to the, the tent of meeting. They interface with God, and God tells Moses to go and speak to the rock. And as he speaks to the rock, fountains of water will flow forth for the people of Israel to be provided for. But what Moses does is he goes, and he doesn't speak to the rock like he's instructed. What happens now is he, he goes in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, he says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. What just happened here? See, Moses, out of his frustration with the people of God, violates the words of God and strikes the rock twice to bring forth water. And what he's tapping into here is he's saying, hey, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus is saying, I am the rock. I am the rock that's going to be hit by the spiritual leadership of Israel. I will be split open so that the people of God can drink fully of the Holy Spirit. He's making an analogy on this seventh day of the feast where they would pour the water out on the altar. And they, he says, I am this true rock that gives forth the water to God's people. If you split me open, I will make a people for the Lord. We understand from these verses then that Jesus is not just some ho-hum prophet that came along. Jesus is not just some other guy, some other leader. All of these questions being asked, is he from Bethlehem? Is he from Nazareth? Where's he from? Who's his dad? How does he teach with authority? What he's pointing at is he's saying, I am the all-satisfying giver of living water. And if you come to me and drink, you'll never thirst again, like he said to the woman at the well. Split me open, and I'll feed you for all eternity. Throughout John 7, the Israelites are fumbling about trying to figure out if, if Jesus really is the guy. And Jesus comes along and he extends this open invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He speaks with this confidence that the, the Father is drawing. He speaks with the confidence that those who love the will of God will recognize his teaching. And finally, he presents himself as the solution to their thirst. 
But again, what the remainder of the chapter shows us is the hard-hearted response. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? See, in my mind, I always equate Galilee with Akron, Ohio, right? Can anything good come out of Akron, Ohio? I'm from Akron, just so you know. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. They're seeking him, but they're not finding him. There's this funny thing that happened in John chapter 1. We might have missed it. Jesus is one who comes into the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it or ascertain it or grab it. And John has this kind of double meaning, right? Because time after time, as the Jews are seeking to arrest Jesus, they're unable to grab him. And yet there's a deeper level at which he came into the darkness and they didn't understand him. Isn't that what's being reflected here? It's not just them. There's this other section in verses 45 through 52 where it's not just so confused and kind of, uh, kind of up in the air about everything. There's a hard-hearted response here too in verses 45 through 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The hard-heartedness isn't just one where they personally reject, reject Jesus. It's that they reject anyone who accepts Jesus or even looks like they're accepting Jesus. And it's funny, it's ironic that in this kind of dialogue, they're saying that no authority or Pharisee has believed in him, and then Nicodemus speaks up. See, we just see the variation in the human heart, right? Some of us respond with faith. Some of us see the Christ. Some of us just think he's a really good guy. He's a prophet. He's a moral teacher. Other of us are just hardened in our response. And we look at Jesus, and, and we vehemently reject it. And yet, in the midst of that context, Jesus presents himself as Lord all the same. What do we do with this passage? How do we understand it? What are we supposed to do to incorporate this understanding into our lives? I have two applications for us here this morning. I know, usually you get one. Today, it's double your value, right? I want to give an aside first, kind of, give a reflection about John 6 and 7. And then I want to zero in specifically in John 7 and bring an application from there. First, let's talk about evangelism. 
Notice Jesus' pattern of evangelism here. Notice that Jesus knows he's going to hard-hearted individuals, and he still speaks openly about his identity. Jesus knows that rejection is coming, that his hour is coming down the pike, and yet he still speaks grace and truth. Let's evangelize like Jesus. You know, we've said this year we want to try and really dig in as a church to understand and kind of dig in as our identity as witnesses, that uh, we try to share the gospel with those who might not know about Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Well, we see the world's greatest evangelist on our pages here in John chapter 7, don't we? See, Jesus has this confidence that his Father will do his work. You know, you go to a salesman or you have someone come to your door. Not too much anymore. Like, that's kind of creepy when you go and knock on somebody's door and try and sell something. But it still happens all the same. And they come to your door and they're going to try and tell you of all of the benefits of their product and kind of create this sense of need. I don't just want this thing. I need it, right? Salesmen need to create need in their customers. But we, as we're evangelists or witnesses in Christ, we don't have to create need. It's already there. We're already talking to thirsty people. (laughs) Because everyone has sin. All people need Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans chapter 3, 23, you learned it at your vacation Bible school as a kid. It, It gives us the confidence that when we speak, we offer the hope that everyone needs. But only some will recognize their thirst. I remember I once spoke with someone who said they felt they had to seal the deal in evangelism, that they had to kind of so convince someone to play It's their faith in Jesus. I can't imagine how that individual slept at night. They would always have this sense of how they could have said something differently or could have done something differently or could have spoken at the other time or or done something in order to draw this person into salvation. What Jesus shows us here is someone who is trusting that the Father is drawing his own. And he's speaking hard words of truth, trusting that the God who calls them will also save them. Now notice it doesn't get us off the hook, right? We still have to speak up. Just because the Father's drawing doesn't mean we got to stop speaking. No, we still speak. We still speak with confidence. And we openly invite others, just like Jesus does in John chapter 7, verse 37. He openly invite others to come and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't shy away from speaking his truth. Second application is this. It's probably the more important. It's a call for us to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. We might look to other things, right, to satisfy us. Isn't that the nature of our tendency? Jeremiah describes it this way. He's, he uses the, the metaphor of a, a well, And he says this, he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've dug out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. We've 
turned away from the very thing that would satisfy us, and we've created something for ourselves that will never satisfy us. And what we do as humanity is we're constantly turning to other things to satisfy our personal or proverbial spiritual thirst. Jesus promises to meet us in this more essential, rooted categories of our being. What are we really talking about here when we're talking about Jesus satisfying our thirst? Sounds like a very spiritualized concept. It sounds like something kind of very uh, spiritual and nebulous and not very specific. But what Jesus is saying to us is that in our sinfulness, Jesus will meet us. He will satisfy us. He'll connect us to the, the Father. Notice that what John does is he unpacks this verse and he ties it to the presence of the Holy Spirit. That you and I, when we place faith in Jesus, will actually be filled with the Spirit, and that will, in some sense, satisfy us. It's that idea that we're brought into greater communion with God through the work of Jesus. And in that communion with God, through the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit indwells us, we are satisfied. Jesus promises to meet us in these more essential categories. He doesn't scratch our sinful itches. If we are seeking to be satisfied in our our sexual lust, or seeking to be satisfied in our monetary gain, or seeking to be satisfied in our uh, our career goals, or whatever else, Jesus won't scratch those itches. We, We can't come to Christ thirsty and then put a mouthful of sand in our mouth and expect to be satisfied. What Jesus serves to do is restore us to the God who created us and thereby return us to our original intention so that we would relate rightly to our God as we were intended to do. Now, here's the thing is there's some of us in various stages of life that might be particularly prone to bring, dig out broken cisterns for ourselves in specific ways. I want, to, I want to deal with us in three different categories. I'm going to let these age-oriented categories fall as they may on you. I'm not going to describe where you fall, right? For the young. And I just encourage you to set your life in a direction to seek the all-satisfying presence of Jesus Christ. See, what your temptation is right now is disregard for the things of Christ whether you're 15 or 25, you want to just throw your hands in the air and be done with it and say, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do the things I do, and that's what it's going to be. You say statements like this, I don't need this religion stuff. I know all of these things. You might even say, I have plenty of years ahead of me. I can come to Jesus later in life. I don't need this right now. I'm going to disregard these religious claims of Christ, and I'm going to seek to satisfy myself in something else. i got to tell you, what you're going to do is multiply your sorrows. For those of us who are middle-aged, We might be tempted toward deviation. The young person is tempted toward disregard for the claims of Christ and the all-satisfying movements of Christ. And the middle-aged person is is claimed to deviate, to compromise. What we say to ourselves is things like this. "I I just need some me time. 
I just need to, to do my thing. We're given to this sense of compromise. We might have started off well, but our later years are, are given to this half-heartedness and the pressures of life and parenting and jobs and everything else just kind of accumulate and they load up on our shoulders. And what we want to do is we just want to cast it off and get away. So we want to deviate from the course. Maybe you're here with us and you're more seasoned. It's for the aged. And your temptation is toward disillusionment. You say, nothing is ever as advertised. I've been there. I've tried that. Nothing ever really satisfies me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the grave in bitterness and resentment. We struggle to think that anything will actually be as rewarding as promised. And so we just, we just resign ourselves and say, I'm just going to finish out my years and I'm just going to fight my way through it. But I'm not going to seek to be satisfied in Jesus because I'm afraid that it won't be all satisfying like he promises. And we saw last week in Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist David, he says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That doesn't start just in eternity. That starts right now. We can be satisfied in Christ. We can find true joy in Christ. We can find satisfaction through the living waters of Jesus' life and death. And the call this morning is not just to evangelize like Jesus evangelized. The call this morning is for us to turn to Christ as those who need to be satisfied by his grace and mercy. I want to pray this morning as we kind of wrap up that God allows us to be a people oriented to being satisfied in Jesus, to find infinite joy in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that that would be exactly what happens. Move us to be satisfied in your Son. Move us to invite others to the same satisfaction that we've received. And allow us to honor your name as we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.